Welcome back to season two of Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. After more than a year of waiting, the jury in the trial of Robert Durst returned to the courtroom yesterday for the first time in 14 months, and the trial itself resumed today. At the end of the episode, we'll return to the latest events of the trial, including the breaking news from last week. But for now, we're going to continue our exploration of the life of Susan Berman, Durst's best friend and the woman he's charged with murdering. If you missed last week's episode, hit pause and start there to hear about Susan's childhood. And before we begin this episode, I'm joined by my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder, to discuss what we heard last week. Brittany, what stuck out to you about last week's episode? Well, Susan Berman had such a unique life. Even if she had never met Robert Durst, her story, in particular the time she spent in Vegas, feels larger than life. You know, you could see it as a movie. Yeah, it was almost a TV series. Yeah, I was particularly struck by Carol Mendelssohn's comparison of Susan's childhood to Eloise at the Plaza. I mean, I read the Eloise books as a child, and you just think like this girl has a fancy life in a ritzy hotel, and you don't really interrogate where her parents were. In Susan's case, you know, she might have been frolicking around a nice suite, and then in the next room, her father's playing poker with Ice Pick Willie. And all of this stuff is happening around this girl who had no friends who were her peers. You know, it kind of reminds me of Oliver Twist in the Charles Dickens novel. That's absolutely it, yeah. She's an only child, and often the only child in a room full of adults. But then, because she suffered the loss of her parents at such a young age, you can see how some of the things that were swirling around her took on a darker meaning as she grew up. The sense of loyalty that she learned from her father, a sense of scarcity, both financially and with the people in her life that she could trust, and of course the anxiety that comes from feeling like the floor could fall out from under you at any time. And we're going to see much more of that as we continue our story of Susan Berman's life, sometimes in her own words, as written in her memoir, Easy Street, The True Story of a Mob Family, and as read by actress Elena Zizanis. We will also hear from some of her closest friends and collaborators. In part two of this series, we'll pick up with Susan's move from Los Angeles to San Francisco. That's coming up in this episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, right after the break. 
Veteran reporter Charlie Bagley, who has been covering Robert Durst for decades, describes what it must have been like for Susan arriving in San Francisco in the late 1960s. And so after graduating UCLA in the summer of 1967, she decides to head to San Francisco and ultimately Berkeley, the University of California, where they were trying to revive the graduate journalism program. And it was a tumultuous time. I mean, think about what was going on on the campus. Not only were there almost daily demonstrations at Sproul Plaza on the UCAL Berkeley campus, but Martin Luther King was killed in 1968. He was assassinated. Bobby Kennedy. I mean, there was this ferment. And Susan, like many young people of that era, was affected by it. But Susan kind of stood out as a little different. She was not a dilettante. This was a woman that was extremely dedicated to what she wanted to do. She worked hard. One fellow student of hers told me that when they were told to do a, a sort of a master's project, Susan went and read a lot of the master's theses by preceding classes and then started discussing with the professors what it was that they wanted. So she went out of her way. And again, the Berkeley campus is in an uproar every single day. And Susan was part of that ferment, but she was also separate from it because there she is tooling around campus in a white Mercedes. The contrast was pretty funny. Just when all the other students are trying to commit class suicide. Susan is uh, embracing her luxurious uh, lifestyle. After graduation, Susan got straight to work. She published her first book, The Underground Guide to the College of Your Choice, which she compiled and wrote with her boyfriend, Alan Neckritz. It was a college guide unlike any other, helping students find the best pot, the best professors, and the best places to hook up. She also landed a job at the San Francisco Examiner, where she worked the grueling court beat. Maybe it was being out of the protective environment of school for the first time, or maybe it was the pressures of working on a daily newspaper. But by 1972, Susan had reached a point of emotional exhaustion. Susan recounts the period in her memoir, Easy Street. At 28, I had a breakdown myself. It was brought on partly by a sense of total rootlessness. Well, I felt I existed with connections to no one, except my uncle and my cousin. I was sinking in my depression. Every single thing about my life seemed confusing. I lay in bed for two months, hoping I would die. Then finally, inspired by the dim memory of my parents and knowing that if I opted for suicide, I would never know who they were, I began the struggle to gain control of my mind. I remember the gruesome mornings. I would walk the six blocks from my apartment in Pacific Heights in San Francisco to the shrink's office. It took me 45 minutes. I lingered on street corners, afraid to cross the street for fear I would throw myself in front of a speeding car. I will never forget those brutal months. The fear I had that my psyche was irreparably harmed. Every feeling seemed injured. Every nerve ending was singed by fire. I would sit for hours in a donut shop with junkies and winos. I'd lift my feet at 4 p.m. when they mopped the place. I felt like them, homeless. I had nowhere to go, not physically, but emotionally. Then one day, I got angry. I got better. 
Suddenly I could drive, I could smile, I could write. I still remember that day after my analytic session when I knew I was going to make it. I ran out, walked with confidence for the first time, hugged my dog, kissed my parents' pictures, yelled, I'm alive again! I opened the blinds on my life after a year of death-like depression. Once the cloud lifted, Susan got back to her typewriter. She was also pitching stories soon to the local magazine that had started up called City. It only lasted about a year, but in that year, Susan made quite a name for herself with a cover story about why she can't get laid in San Francisco. The famous getting laid cover story. This one story seems to come up a lot, considering the volume of Susan's published works. Durst's defense attorney, the legendary Dick DeGaron, out of all her credits, thought it was worth mentioning in his opening statement. She was a great writer, terrific writer. <laughs> they had a sense of humor. She wrote an article for uh, City Magazine, and I think it's been on the screen, City Magazine in San Francisco that said, why can't I get laid in San Francisco? A friend of Susan's reflected on the absurdity and the calculation that went into writing that story. Quote, she was completely unqualified to write that story, end quote. Journalist Julie Smith told Charlie Bagley, laughing. It had a huge impact and, and got everybody talking. And Susan learned from this experience. What are the elements of a story that gets you on the front page, that gets people talking about it? So she was puttering along she, at a pretty high rate. Now, this doesn't mean that she had success at every moment. Uh, a friend of hers, uh, another reporter, told me that when she visited Susan's apartment, the door to the apartment was covered with rejection notices from publishers and, and magazines. And Susan was sort of dismissive of the whole thing, you know, like those jokers don't know what they're missing. In the late 1970s, Susan met an aspiring musician, Nick Chavin, who became another lifelong friend. Chavin was a singer who went by the stage name of Chingo Chavin. As a young adult, he gained notoriety by singing humorous country songs with explicit subject matter. I was living in San Francisco at the time, and I was a performer. And uh, my manager, my agent, the performer, told me there was someone he wanted me to meet, and she was a writer. And she wrote music reviews, and we were always anxious to have you know, publicity for a music reviewer. So I was sitting on the washing machine in her basement, and my manager came in with Susan Berman, and we met, and we felt like kindred spirits. Uh, I hadn't moved to New York yet, and I don't think she had either. She was living in San Francisco. So we met, she wrote a few short pieces about my, me and my band, and then I moved to New York. It was a new relationship, but Chavin needed a favor, and his instincts told him that Susan could be trusted. Chavin and his wife were separating, and she wanted their five-year-old daughter, Brandy, to go live with him in New York for a while. They needed someone who could accompany the little girl on a long flight. Chavin asked Susan, and though she had never met the child, she agreed. Because she lived up to the trust we had put into her, and she made Brandy happy and secure, and. I, I, I would love her forever for that. Not long after, Susan moved to New York, too. She rented a studio apartment in a converted townhouse on Beekman Place, just blocks from the United Nations and the East River. 
It was there, again, in the laundry room, that she made another lifelong friend, her new neighbor, Miriam Barnes. I was doing my laundry. She came in to do her laundry. Um, I, I was rather quiet and shy, and she, hi, you know, I'm Susan, and I just moved here from Bolivar, you know, and, and we just became fast friends. She was vivacious and exuberant uh, when she, you know, was in her better moods, <laughs> and uh, she was uh, very outgoing. She um, had a lot to say. She was. She would talk, and you know, she had a big personality. Susan's byline began appearing in bigger and bigger magazines. Cosmopolitan, New York Magazine, and Family Circle, where she landed a cover story on Miss America-turned-politician Bess Meyerson. A plum assignment for Us Magazine got her on the set of a groundbreaking new show, Saturday Night Live. During interviews, she and cast member Lorraine Newman clicked, and the two became friends. Years later, Newman would describe Susan as a, quote, very complex person, end quote. She said, quote, Susan could be full of energy, but could also be very draining. She was very funny, but needed emotional support from her friends, end quote. It was New York City in the late 70s, and Susan frequented fashionable spots like Elaine's and the Russian Tea Room. She could be spotted with celebrities or friends like Nick Chavin, Bob Durst, and Durst's pretty young wife, a med student named Kathy. And it was in New York that Susan wrote Easy Street, the true story of a mob family. The book was about her father, but also about herself and her unconventional childhood. It would help Susan put her life in context and advance her writing career. It would also lead to an introduction to James Grady. In 1979, I was working as an investigative reporter for syndicated columnist Jack Anderson. Jack Anderson was a muckraker and a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who covered many topics, including organized crime. And my agent at William Morris called me up one day and said, you know, you've got to come up to New York and we're going to have you over for dinner. And then afterwards, there's someone I want you to meet. One of our clients, we just got this, she just got this new great deal to write a book about her father. Apparently, the publisher was concerned that, despite growing up the daughter of a mobster, Susan really didn't know much about the mafia and hoped that Grady could give her a tutorial. She had a sense that Susan felt her dad was kind of in a Damon Runyon Broadway musical, you know, with flappers and just kind of a wild and crazy guy who did a few things. So Susan and Grady made a date to meet. She said, look, would you do me a favor? Would you come up to New York in the next couple of weeks? And I'll take you out to dinner. We'll go to the Russian Tea Room, which I've never been to. Uh, and you can teach me all about this mafia thing. You know, and so I came up. We go to the Russian Tea Room. We're, we're ushered in. And she, she had been a, a New York magazine, slick magazine writer. And we got shown to like a primo table, which I realized only after I saw other people getting turned away. We're sitting there in the middle and we ordered drinks and I ordered a daiquiri because I thought it was sophisticated. I was this rube Montana boy on some level. And here's this sophisticated New York hotshot woman who clearly everybody knew. 
who she was in, in the tea room. She said, okay, teach me about the mafia. And I started back with like Lupo the Wolf arriving in New York and I, I'm, I, I'm going on and on. And at the time, I'd also been lecturing at the DC Police Academy on organized crime as well as covering it for Jack. And we got through our first drink. She ordered me a second one. I get right up to maybe maybe I'd been going on at a long rambling monotone with not a, an expression on her face, not not anything on her face. And I I got up to the five family structure in, in New York where we work, and I just exploded, and I yelled at her, and I re I remember kind of bouncing up in the chair and saying, "You don't get it." You're supposed to be telling me this stuff, not me telling you. You're supposed to be the expert on the mafia because you grew up in it. And there was a pause in this sweet little girl voice. She said, Jim, you don't understand. I was always just daddy's little girl. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Susan didn't really want to consult with me much after that. We became friends. I stayed at her apartment, which was odd. By this time, Susan had left her studio apartment and bought a condo in a posh building up the street. She lived on Beekman Place in what I now realize must have been a multiple hundred thousand dollar apartment. Um, giant, vast, open living room and a fold-out couch and in the kitchen, a little table with her typewriter on it. And that was pretty much all there. I never, she had a bedroom set that I just gleeped, but, but it was, it was like she hadn't moved in and she, it was that way for years. The Spartan lifestyle on Beekman Place was the rule for Susan, not the exception. But after spending three years writing Easy Street, meticulously sifting through the past and analyzing her own life experiences, Susan was able to trace the roots of her unusual behaviors with striking clarity. There are scars within me that'll probably never heal. I have uncontrollable anxiety attacks that occur without warning. I'm never secure and live with the dread that apocalyptic events could happen at any moment. I'm never settled, but prefer instead to live a rather nomadic existence without much furniture or possessions. Easy Street was quickly optioned by Linda Obst, a New York Times reporter and editor who was moving to Los Angeles and launching a career as a film producer. She's still in the business with hits such as Interstellar, Hope Floats, Sleepless in Seattle, and many others. So Susan and I met, and she assigned the rights to uh, myself and a gentleman named Danny Goldberg. Um, I was there for development and to help get the movie sold. And Danny, who she trusted uh, completely, was there to help. And I think also because she needed a strong man to help her get up and down elevators. And she was phobic about various things. 
Their collaboration would last five years, with Easy Street, the book, never making it to the screen. They remained friends after, but during the intense period of adapting the book, Linda and Susan worked together two or three times a week. Because we, our story was the substance of her life, they became deep psychological conversations where often we talked about uh, analogous situations for me to try to bring out the story for her to try to, for me to get her to demythologize her parents. So often we talked about our love lives, we talked about, they, they became sort of deep dish psychological sessions, which development meetings often do become, um, in which Susan and I really got to know each other on a deep psychological level. These sessions also revealed some of Susan's eccentricities. Opes describes her as, Very excitable, very exuberant, a little bit manipulative um, in that she knew who would be best to take care of her and she very much tried to keep the people that could take care of her, that could keep her safe, very close to her, very tightly close to her. Um, she was phobic. She had extreme phobias. She couldn't go up elevators. She couldn't cross bridges. Susan's other defining characteristic was her loyalty. It's mentioned time and again by friends and colleagues. She learned loyalty from her father. She expected loyalty? Susan was a very loyal person, would you agree? Absolutely. Linda Oves put it this way. Loyalty was everything to Susan. Uh, she learned it from her father. It was the mafioso way. Uh, if you had a friend who took care of you, you took care of them for life. Uh, she was extremely loyal to a number of lifelong people, uh, people for life in a lifelong way. Of course, one such friend was Bob Durst, with whom Susan had remained close since their days at UCLA. Susan began talking about him the day we met, virtually. She wanted me to meet him very, very much. She spoke about him in great hyperbole. She thought he was, he was very much the most important person in her life. She was crazy about him. She said he was incredibly rich, incredibly handsome, incredibly, incredibly, incredibly everything, incredibly incredible, and that he was going to give the greatest party for Easy Street, that he was a real estate scion, and he was so cool, and I would love him so much. And, and she was so over the top about it that I, I said, but Susan, we could have Nora or, or Nora and Carl. Or... Opes is referring to celebrity couple Carl Bernstein and Nora Ephron. Who was one of my best friends at the time. We could have a literary party. We don't need to have a party from a real estate guy. Because I wasn't really very taken with second generation real estate guys. And she was like, no, 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 no. He's my best friend. I love him so much. We're unbelievably tight. And it never stopped. The book party finally happened in December of 1981, hosted by Bob Durst at Sammy's Romanian Steak on Manhattan's Lower East Side. They had a book party at Sammy's Romanian Steakhouse, which was quite a place down on the Lower East Side on Christie Street, so it was a classic place. And the only way to describe it is low ceilings and high cholesterol. They specialized in Jewish comfort food, vodka, and uh, garlic-smeared steak. Very low ceilings, very loud. You didn't go there for conversation. And Bob Durst was sort of the, 
the MC, the host of this party, and up on the walls, Susan had blown up these pictures of her parents, including one was a wanted poster of her father. And they were displayed prominently all over the place. And it, and it was like a, a who's who in there. Steven Silverman was there who, who would go on with People Magazine. Jerry Rubin, you know, the yippie. Danny Goldberg, a music industry executive. Lorraine Newman, Julie Baumgold, another writer. Linda Obst. A month later, on January 31st, 1982, Bob Durst's wife Kathy vanished. Susan stepped in to help her friend. She managed his contacts with the media and spread Durst's story that Kathy was unstable and might have run away with a drug dealer. Prosecutors now contend that Berman also impersonated Kathy Durst on the phone, calling in sick to her medical school on the day Kathy went missing. It's a theory supported by Susan's friends. Well, in the context of many, many conversations where we had made the analogy of she was like Gladys to Davy in terms of being needed by him and helping him. She once told me that she called Albert Einstein Medical Center for him at, and said she was Kathy. And at that particular time, she told me that um, she did it because that's what love was. And she was doing what Gladys had done for Davy. The confession seems to have come up organically. Well, we were in the middle of a completely different conversation about um, making psychological discoveries. So her demeanor was kind of excited. It was like, yes, yes, it was like that. Um, I, Bobby is like my dad to me, and Goddess is like me in that circumstance. So it wasn't like I think she was even aware she was making a confidential statement. She, it was in the midst of a revel psychological revelation. Susan hinted at her involvement to James Grady. She also mentioned she'd helped him afterwards, after his wife disappeared. That was how, that was how I first realized there was something more to this Bobby guy. She, she said, well, yeah, I, I helped him after his wife disappeared and then literally did this mumbled and I couldn't, you know, it was her trying to shut down her stream of consciousness. How exactly did she help him? She said something about being his public relations guy, which I just, that sounded like some phrase somebody else made up and gave to her. She implied there was more, but she wouldn't go there. Susan's friend and neighbor, Miriam Barnes, remembers a conversation the two had, seated awkwardly on straight back chairs in the entryway of Susan's apartment was the same day Kathy disappeared. She recounted it for prosecutors. She said, I'm going to tell you something, but I, I, I need you not to ask me any questions. She said to me, I did something today. She said she did it for Bobby. It took her a while to get it out. She was very nervous. And when Susan got nervous, she would pick at her lip. And, it, it, and she said, I did something today, and did it for Bobby. And then her next statement was, if anything ever happened to me, Bobby did it. With their mutual friend, Nick Chavin, Susan was more direct. Susan said to me specifically that Bob killed Kathy, and I said, no, he didn't, and she said, yes, he did, and we argued about that, and she said, we love both of them, Kathy's gone, we love Bob, we need to protect him, Bob killed Kathy. I said, how do you know? She said, 
He told me. He told me. Three years of researching and writing about her father and the mafia led Susan to revelations about her past. That much is clear, but did it influence her present and future as well? On the heels of celebrating the success of Easy Street, her dearest friend called in a favor. When it happened, she was every bit Davy's daughter. After 15 years in journalism, writing other people's stories, writing my own father's was the toughest assignment I ever picked. But he passed on to me his greatest quality, strength. Because maybe he knew that one day I would find out who he had really been, and then I would need every bit of strength I had to survive. He taught me the one thing he knew I would need, the ability to get along. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. With the trial of Robert Durst starting Tuesday, May 18, on Monday, May 17, there was a last-minute flurry of events related to Durst's trial. On the East Coast, a lawyer representing Kathy Durst's family held a press conference to go public with allegations about members of the Durst family and the Durst organization. After Robert Durst murdered Kathy in South Salem, New York, on January 31, 1982, he, with the help of Susan Berman, and others in the Durst orbit came up with an elaborate scheme to make it appear that Kathy returned to New York City and then voluntarily abandoned him, her family, her friends, her medical school education, and everything in this world that she loved. We all know that that's a sham. The Durst family, with their considerable political connections, made the investigation into Kathy's murder go away. The first cover-up was a cover-up that Robert Durst killed Kathy. But the second cover-up is comprised of the attempt of the Durst family to cover up their involvement in the cover-up of Robert's murder of Kathy. Less than an hour later, Judge Mark Wyndham bookended his welcoming back jurors in the trial with morning and afternoon motion hearings. The morning hearing addressed concerns raised by the defense about their client's health. Judge Wyndham did his best to maintain a sense of decorum, but in the afternoon, things got a little heated. It was clearly a hearsay statement, so we couldn't stipulate that. So, but that's that's it. That's it. No, you may not continue. We are going to be silent now. And now, to discuss all of these events, I'd like to bring back Brittany and welcome Charles Bagley, who is covering the Durst trial for the New York Times and for CrimeStory.com. Charlie, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So what's this lawsuit by the McCormick family uh, against the Durst family and the Durst organization all about? 
Well, Robert Abrams, the lawyer, contends that not only did Bob kill Kathy, but that the Durst family, including his hated brother Douglas, who presides over the Durst real estate empire, were complicit and active in covering up what Bob had done. Uh, they have sought in the past $100 million from the Durst family, etc., Bob and the rest of them. Bob has actually been estranged from the family for a quarter century. Estranged is a bit of an understatement. Yeah, speaking of understatement, um, can we talk about the picture in the background? Absolutely. So he's sitting in front of a painting of a fake New York skyline with a big sign that says Long Island across the top. Yes, quite the piece of art. Uh, and he had the perfect New York accent to go along with it. I've got to say, the the one thing that stuck out to me was what he said at the end about Kathy's family members still being frightened to come out publicly against Durst. Right. It'll be interesting to see how the Durst family responds to this lawsuit. Moving over to the trial now. Charlie, during the morning session, they were talking about uh, a motion made by the defense about Robert Durst's health. Can you tell me a little bit about how that went down? Well, the the... The defense is arguing that Bob is now incapable of assisting in his own defense because of a variety of physical ailments, including uh, cancer. Uh, this is something that has just come up recently. I mean, Bob's medical problems are longstanding, but they finally had a, uh, the defense had a doctor look at him on May 7th. And it was met with some skepticism, this idea, particularly because Bob recently wrote a letter to the judge in which he excoriated his own defense lawyers, but he, the letter showed that he is very cogent and aware of what's going on around him. So the judge said, okay, well, I'll take this under consideration and, and maybe we'll have a, a hearing on this down the line, but I'm not going to slow down the start of the trial. Charlie, we just heard a heated exchange between John Lewin and Dick DeGarren, and we heard the judge try to calm the fray. What was at the heart of all that? Well, the defense was putting forward a new theory about uh, Bob and how he wasn't involved in Kathy's death. And John Lewin couldn't take it. Uh, he felt it was disingenuous. And he barged in, interrupting DeGarren. DeGarren's voice went up and he was yelling. And then Lewin snapped back and called it a, him a liar. So it, it got very heated, very tense, very quickly. Yeah, that was really shocking. It seemed like they were about to fight each other. Is that typical? Not between DeGarren and Lewin so much, although they don't really like each other very much. But most of the theatrics to date have been between Chesnoff and Lewin. They really don't like each other. <laughs> yeah, you can tell. After following this case uh, for a long time, this was one time where Judge Wyndham's indecision seemed to cause him to lose control of the courtroom for a minute. But it, I was really struck by the way he took control of it like a teacher in a fifth grade classroom. I <laughs> know. Go to a corner and chill. <laughs> 
And that was just the first day of what promises to be at least several months. And we're looking forward to watching these larger-than-life personalities make their cases and hopefully see Durst in the flesh tomorrow. We'll continue to bring you the latest trial updates in our regular weekly episodes and in special bonus episodes. And please come back next week for the third and final part of our exploration of Susan Berman's life. Automatically receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from Season 1. And head over to CrimeStory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst is created and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Brittany Bookbinder is my co-host. This episode was co-produced by Alexis Bartolo and Brittany Bookbinder. The episode was written by Karen Ann Coburn with contributions from Charles Bagley and Brittany Bookbinder. Passages from Susan Berman's writings were read by Elena Zizanis. Post-production and editing were handled by Jody O'Keefe. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.